We are walking through a new series called Give Us an Undivided Heart, and we are riffing off of King David's prayer in Psalm 86, where he says to the Lord, give us or give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name, this recognition that there is a part of me that wants to want what God wants. There's a part of me that wants to love what God loves. There's a part of me that wants to hate what God hates. And there's another part of me that wants him to not look me in the eye, that wants him just to please leave me alone and let me do what I would like. I don't want to be bothered. And there's this recognition if we're ever going to be wholehearted, if we're ever going to be as we were designed, then we need God to act on us. And David invites that to happen, and that's what we're asking God to do as we walk through these passages. Today, Solomon, in this sort of royal instruction manual for children, teaching them the the ABCs of, of wisdom, of how you live a godly and skilled life, how things ordinarily pan out, how they will eventually pan out entirely. He tells his son not to forget his teaching, to keep his commands, the commands of Proverbs in his heart, for they will prolong your life and they'll bring you prosperity. He's giving him a vision of the good life, which is what all people want, whether they realize it or not. They have some vision that they're operating under of the good life. And he says, here's how you get it. And verse 5 and 6 are what we're focusing on. But he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Not undivi- it's, it's not divided heart. It's not fragmented heart. It's not fractured heart. It's offer your whole self to him. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Solomon recognizes that there are really two paths one could take. One is simply to entrust yourself to yourself. How I think about things, what naturally occurs to me, how I naturally feel about something, or what does God think about it? How might I depend on him? How might I take his evaluations and let them become my own? If you've seen the movie The Big Short, you'll notice in the preface they have this little epigrammatic little quote from Mark Twain. I looked it up and apparently no one can find where Mark Twain said this. So there, Michael Lewis. He wrote the book, The Big Short. He's an amazing storyteller, an amazing author, and it's a, I think it's going to be a good movie, but I haven't seen all of it. But only, I saw the beginning, though, enough to see this. And here's the quotation, though. I think it's fantastic, and it helps what Solomon is saying here today. It's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you do know that just ain't so. It's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you do know that just ain't So, it's a recognition that there are things that you hold very dear. Things that you think are so true. And they're just not. They're perceptions that you have of why someone did something. And you know why they did it. Because they're rotten. Because they hate you. 
because they just wanted to see you cry. Because when they get home, they don't watch Netflix. They think about your misery. That's why they didn't invite you to the party. It couldn't have possibly been carelessness or forgetfulness or that they had a lot going on. There's no way it could have been any of those things. It has to be pure vindictiveness. We know, don't we? There's things we just know. Psychologists would call this the things that make for reactivity. Or if you want to get really fancy and you want to impress Alex Trebek one day when you're being interviewed on Jeopardy, you can say, I'm trying to avoid my automaticities. Boom. These are things neuropsychologists would say, automaticities are the things that are embedded in you that you just do automatically. There's so much about your life that you just automatically do. You're just predisposed to do it. You have deeply held convictions and beliefs and memories and experiences that make you just react to things. They're automatic. Automaticities. Remember that. Write that down. Impress somebody if you play words, friends with words, words with friends. I play it all the time. That's why I know how it goes. But I've, I've heard of this. But so Solomon is giving us a way here to say, look, resist, rail against your reactivities. Be antagonistic against your automaticities. Rail against the things that you're reactive to. And I'm going to talk about a few areas where that could be. First of all, where you're reactive in relationships. Where you're reactive in relationships. Rail against reactivity in relationships by trusting the Lord and leaning not on your own understanding. He says, let love, verse 3, let love and faithfulness never leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Then you will win favor and a good name in the sight of God and of man. One of the geniuses. Well, let me pause for a minute to prove my point. In Lula Lake, I thought, wow, goodness. Okay, if you have... On your person, or in your purse, a phone of some sort today, will you please raise your hand? Okay. That's pathetic. Just kidding. I have one right here in my back pocket. Okay, you see what the genius of this consumer product is? I was watching C-SPAN one night, because I have no friends. And I was watching this lecture. There's all kind of interesting lectures on there if you, you know, if you pay attention and you've got nothing else to do. And it's really late at night when you're in a stupor. And this guy was talking about the genius of this consumer product of the smartphone or the mobile phone, but especially the smartphone, because now a device has been created that's much like your keys and your wallet. It's one of the few things in your life that you would be driving down the road and realize you don't have and feel like you were somebody with emphysema and you forgot your oxygen tank. You'd be like, well, I know I'm in Nashville and I'm about to fly overseas for a European vacation. And I might miss the flight, but I forgot my cell phone. So i got to go back home to get it. You will go back home to get your cell phone. You would never dream of leaving home on purpose without your cell phone. If you did, it would feel like you were walking around in the world naked. Like, oh gosh, I forgot to wear a shirt today. This is awfully embarrassing. You wouldn't just go to the office like that. You're going to go back and get a shirt. And you're going to go back and get your phone. Most of you would do this. Well, Solomon would say, here. Here's what's, here's, here's the product. Here are the values. 
They're like a smartphone that you should never leave your house without. You should let these covenant words, these, these fidelity concepts, love and faithfulness, you should put those on in the morning. You should have them tattooed on your insides. You should give some thought, some meditation to, some consideration of how am I going to act in response to a God who has given up everything for me, who has promised to give me this day my daily bread, who has promised to meet me with new mercies today, who is sending me out into the world to do my work, whether that's at the hospital or whether that's in the daycare that is your house and the tornado that will come in just a few hours when everybody wakes up. Who am I kidding? They're already awake. You're asking God and you're thinking about, how do I love? How do I, how do I exhibit faithfulness in my life? Bind them around your neck. Make this part of what you wear. Putting on your jewelry. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Get this stuff embedded in you. There's all kinds of things that you're actively embedding in yourself. Inane things, trivial things. You know a whole lot about what your classmate from algebra class back in 1967 did with their grandkids last weekend in Minnesota. It was awesome. You talked to them once in 1967. You remember. You're pretty sure anyways. You're like, hey, 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 Stan. How, how, how you doing? And you're like, you Stan? But you know all about their life. Because you give some attention to their life. You, you know, you voyeur, voyeuristically, you know, hunt them down and stalk them. And so, why not do that with the scriptures? Why not do that with the life of God? Why not do that to, to make sure, am I, am I praying and studying and thinking about how do I bring love into the world? How do I respond to God's love for me out in the world? One of the ways we do that as people to other people as we think about, for instance, our promises. Love and faithfulness are covenant words. They're marriage to God words. And we are a community that wants to take our promises very seriously. Promises we made to our spouses. Promises we make to our employers. Implicit ones and explicit ones. The promises we make to our churches. The promises we make to our children, to our next door neighbors. And we say we want to take these seriously. See, a promise is nothing more than what behavioral psychologists would call a commitment device. Have you ever heard of this, a commitment device? A commitment device is like when you join a club, you join a, not like the club, but you join a workout facility and you are making a promise by linking up your money and giving them access to your checking account where they're going to hit it every month in perpetuity. You're saying, I know that if I can make this decision today, no matter what my flimsy future commitments are, because I've got skin in the game, I'll go. This is why they say it's a lot easier to opt out of a retirement plan than to opt in. If you can just have the good sense one day at your job to sign the form to say, put me in the retirement system, automatically take out retirement from my check. And then you can forget about it, and your future self will thank you. 
if you had to re-decide every two weeks whether you wanted to save for retirement, you'd probably stop. You'd get nervous. You make commitments. It's a commitment device. That's what a vow is. That's what a promise is. You're saying, who knows what my future self is going to be like? Irritable, grumpy, booty. I might forget to take my medication. So I'm taking a promise now. I'm making a promise now for my future self. I'm going to let love and faithfulness be bound around me. That's what's going to inform my relationships. That's what's going to inform my work. That's going to inform my parenting and my life with my neighbors. Rail against your own reactivity by making promises and keeping them. This is trusting the Lord. The Lord will resource you. Trust the Lord, not your own understanding. Your own understanding is going to say, this relationship isn't worth keeping. I'm going to get out of it. Your own understanding is going to tell you not to be loving and charitable towards other people when they wrong you, but to assume all the worst things about them. And trusting the Lord will say, well, maybe there's more to this story than I realize. Maybe I'll not lean on my own understanding. Maybe I'll trust instead. So rail against your reactivity in relationships. The other place we can do this, we can rail against our reactivity with regard to race. And I bring this up for obvious reasons. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. There's a song that I love by Nancy Griffith, who's a Texas folk singer, whose grandparents grew up next to Lubbock, but not too close to Lubbock. Nobody likes to be too close to Lubbock. And she, in this song, like good folk singers do in trying to be provocative, she's She's trying to stir up her sense of social justice and says this. A cafeteria line in Chicago. A fat man in front of me. He's calling black people trash to his children. But he's the only trash here I see. I'll stop there because I don't want to hurt you. And I think Nancy thinks she's onto something. The song is, it's a hard life, it's a hard life, it's a very hard life, it's a hard life wherever you go. We get the point by the time it's over. But she thinks she's on to something because she, like everybody on the internet, thinks that they can identify a social wrong and can speak harshly against the people perpetrating it, that they've suddenly become righteous. So if I can identify someone who's doing something, you're calling somebody else trash? Good one, trash. That's your own understanding. It makes you feel better. Their unrighteousness enhances your sense of righteousness. I promise you, spend five minutes on the internet reading about race relations, and this is one of the things you'll come away with. White people are especially good at doing it on the interwebs. Denouncing all white people as awful, bigoted, racist, homophobes themselves being the one sole exception. If you start to say, I'm not going to lean on my understanding here, though. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to trust the Lord. In all my ways, I'm going to acknowledge him. So when I encounter someone who is other than me, because it isn't just race, it's, 
It's anytime you meet anybody that you perceive for some reason or another is different than you. They have a different level of education. They live in a different part of town. They have a different amount of income. Their job has a different kind of social status. They vacation in different places than you. They don't have a C30A sticker on their car or an HH with a lighthouse. They have a Chattagonia shirt, but not a Patagonia shirt. I saw Chattagonia shirts. I don't know why they did that. (laughs) Apologies if one of you created that. Um, But anytime you come up against somebody who has a different color skin or a different look, they're perceived to be in a different class, you can either look down on them or feel inferior to them. Because when you are leaning on your own understanding, you think of every potential person as someone to dominate or someone who might dominate you. Everybody's a threat. We're in competition with everybody. That's what your own understanding will tell you. Your own understanding will tell you difference means one of us has to be better and one of us has to be worse. But when you trust the Lord and you lean not on your own understanding, you acknowledge him in all your ways, you start to say, what if this person before me who has seemed so unlike me is an assignment from the Lord. The Lord has made this woman. The Lord has made this man. The rich and the poor have this alike. The Lord is the maker of them both. The Asian and the Caucasian and the Chinese and the South American have this alike, that the Lord is maker of them both. The the Russian and the Brit have this alike. The Lord is maker of them all. And when you start to recognize this, and we start to recognize that our Savior himself One of the fruits of him offering his perfect life as a sacrifice was to present to God a people where the dividing walls between Jew and Gentile, between Gentile means the nations, all the ethnicities, that those dividing walls would be obliterated. And he would create in himself one new man, one new person, one new society, one new people who recognized that before God, none of us has a, as one NFL player says, a skin problem, we've got a sin problem. I like that. Can't get away with it, but skin problem, no skin problem, we've got a sin problem. We're radically self-centered. We're radically interested in justifying ourselves, which means we have to put somebody else down so we can feel up. Or we're fearful that they're putting us down, and so we got to level them in some way. But when you acknowledge the Lord, you say, wait, wait, wait. The work of Jesus Christ means that before him, we're all in equally dire straits, all equally in need of mercy. And if I have more money than someone else, that doesn't mean I'm better. It means God's given me more responsibility. If I live in one place where I'm not worried about violence and somebody else lives in a place where they're constantly worried about it, it doesn't mean I'm smarter or more clever. It means that I got got to be born in a different time, place, God's wanted me to steward a different thing. You start bringing God into the equation. You start to say, what does God want me to think about this person who doesn't look like me? What does God want me to see about them? How does God want me to respond to them? How does God want me to show compassion to them as compassion has been shown to me? It has been said by Malcolm Gladwell as he talks about this theory in psychology called moral licensing. 
that this interesting thing happens to people that they frequently, when we're leaning on our own understanding and not trusting the Lord, we're leaning on our own understanding, we, we frequently will do this. We'll think if we do something good, that entitles us, therefore, to do some bad things. Like it's a payoff, you know, like if you exercise, you can then go counteract it with a Starbucks muffin and a latte with 6,000 calories in it. And he notes that with race, this happens all the time. This person who came up with the idea of moral licensing interviewed all these people who were self-identified public supporters of Barack Obama for president, this historic moment where first African-American president of the United States. These people who you would think were racially very open and understanding, they're very liberally progressive. And in interviewing them, he said that the folks who most identified publicly with putting Barack Obama in office were way more susceptible to offering racially questionable opinions and ideas and statements. His thought was, we can prove to the world how open we are. See, we even voted for a black man. Now it doesn't matter how I treat any other black people. I helped a, I helped a homeless guy. I gave, I gave him some money and I drove off real fast. Now I don't have to worry about any other people anymore. Now I can do it. I can go buy myself a boat. Because I gave $3 to a guy. You see what we do? That's leaning on your own understanding. But if you start to recognize everything I have is a trust and all the people around me are part of the world that God loves that he sent his son into to save. And the only thing that makes us different than anybody else is God's decision and everybody we meet is an assignment. Rail against your own reactivity and race or you'll give way to contempt. You'll give way to violence. As Dave Connors was just praying, Dan Allender said something similar in the wake of the shootings in Orlando. Someone was asking, how should Christians respond to this at this gay nightclub? And he said, well, first of all, I think they should respond with grief. Because in our country, there is a quick reaction to blame, to find what are the causes and who did not do what they were supposed to do. All these things get quickly politicized. There's lots of finger pointing, and if you give way to your natural reaction, all you'll do is feel self-righteous, and people will start holding each other in contempt, looking down on each other, being poisonous and corrosive. It'll just issue in more violence. We just saw that. That's acting according to your own lights, your own understanding. Acknowledging the Lord means... Your reactions will pause and other people will start to seem more valuable to you because you know we have the same maker and the same redeemer and we stand in need of the same mercy. You rail against your reactivity in relationships and with regard to race and also with regard to money. He says, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops, then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. Honor the Lord with your wealth. He says, recognize, as we were just saying, when you acknowledge the Lord, you recognize that all the money I receive, all the job opportunities I get, all the relationships and the connections and the networks I'm a part of, all the community and friendship that I have, these are gifts. And I need to make sure that I don't start to think of them as my own sole possession and accomplishment. 
So I will honor the one who gave me the gifts by giving portions of these gifts back to him. The assurance is that you won't run out when you do that. The Bible's always reassuring people. Oh, I gave away my money. I'm not going to have any money. Don't worry about it, it says. The God who gave you all the stuff will give you more stuff as you give him your stuff. He's got this cycle of things going on because he wants people to be generous. He wants people to have generosity of life and wallet. So he says, honor the Lord with your wealth. Your reaction, your normal reaction is I've got to keep this. I've got to protect this. I've got to make sure you don't get this. I worked hard for this. You're a bum. You get nothing. No soup for you. That's the soup Nazi from Seinfeld. You need to watch that. But when you start to see all together differently, you realize, boy, a lot's been entrusted to me, which means a lot of responsibilities have been given to me. Kayla and I had a great conversation, which I'm sure he loved last night, all the way back from Knoxville. We were talking about wealth and compounding interest, how exponentially things grow. But I made this point that wealth itself, to gain wealth, is not a good goal. The Bible says many people who have desired to get rich, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. It's a good byproduct. For many Christians, if you are frugal and you live below your means and you're generous, you will probably acquire and gain some wealth. Wesley said that's one of the problems with Christianity. Is that you need to be poor to be humble, but Christians, by living Christianly, will probably become rich and then they'll become proud. There's this cycle. Because they're not going to live flashily. They're not going to buy more than they can afford. They're going to be generous. And their things are going to multiply. And then they're going to get arrogant. And so then there need to be a stock market collapse. And then they'll get humble again. And... But it might be a great byproduct of our lives, of the way we live. But to whom much is given, much is expected. That's not your normal reaction. So Solomon says, trust in the Lord. Acknowledge him with your wealth by giving it back to him. And lastly this, rail against reactivity in your relationships. Rail against it in your race. Rail against it in your thoughts about money. And rail against your reactivity when it comes to trouble. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. And do not resent his rebuke. Because the Lord disciplines those that he loves. As a father, the son that he delights in. The author of Hebrews picks up on this. And he says, endure hardship as discipline. God's treating you as sons. If he doesn't discipline you, you're a bastard kid. You got no daddy. He doesn't like you. If you got no troubles, isn't that an amazing thing about the Bible, how counterintuitive it is? People think, I remember in baseball, you get a nice hop. Hey, must have been living right. Have you ever heard that? You got a Sunday hop, and then that's, the, that's always the coach's reaction. Must have been living right. Clean living. If you live right, you're going to get good hops. If not, I guess one will hit you in the teeth. And then you got the problem of Jesus, like his whole life was getting hit in the teeth and he was living right, so I don't know how does that work. Well, your natural reaction is to think if I do good, good's going to happen to me only. And if I do bad, then bad's going to happen to me. And the scriptures say, eh. You follow Jesus Christ, you're one with Jesus Christ. His life was a life of sorrows acquainted with many griefs. It was a life of deprivations. He learned obedience through what he suffered. Do you ever think about Jesus having to learn to trust God, having to learn how to obey by what he suffered? That's what we're told. 
it's really helpful to hear this because when something bad happens to you, you start to think, why does God hate me? Why does he turn his back on me? Why do I have to have this flat tire? Why do I have to get a new transmission? Why does this person have this sickness? Why did I lose my job? God must hate me. God must not care. And for the person who trusts God, there's always this railing against your own natural reaction and say, I'm going to acknowledge the Lord here and realize against my normal reaction is what has been revealed to me in Scripture that's very counter to what comes to me. Namely this, that God doesn't let suffering come into my life because he hates me, but because he's so fond of me. You've heard me use this illustration before. Probably I, I, I adapt, adapted this from worse illustrations by C.S. Lewis because he's such a hack. But I was thinking if you had a shirt that you really liked, like a white shirt. I have a few white shirts. I only have white shirts. And say you loved the shirt. And so you wanted to wear the shirt, but it had a stain on it. It had multiple stains on it because that's how my shirts get. You would have to throw it into the washing machine. And that shirt, should it be, you know, most shirts are dullards, but say your shirt was fairly sensible and sentient. It had feelings. It could think about things. You throw that sucker in the washer, you're like, man, I'm feeling claustrophobic. What is he? Why has he got me in this dark area? And then all of a sudden, he starts to waterboard you. The water comes in, you start to drown. Why does he hate me? The water's coming in, I get You can't get oxygen. And then he's pouring, or she, is pouring this jelly, liquidy, pungent stuff. I hate this. It's itchy. The shirt's thinking. And then it starts to spin you around like you're on a ride at Lake Winnipesoka, Tilt-A-Whirl. You're starting to get nauseous. Why does he hate me? I thought he loved me, but he hates me because he's drowning me and he's pummeling me. And he's pouring weird solvents on me. If he were left to his own, or let's say it's a female shirt. If she were left to her own devices, she would assume that the horrible treatment in the washer meant that she was a hated shirt. But the owner would know, this is my favorite shirt. I'm just getting it ready for use. I haven't left it. I'm, I'm superintending this process. I'm going to use this shirt. I need to make it clean again. I need to make it fit for use again. This is how the Bible envisions the way you should envision trouble. Not that God hates you, but he really likes you. Not that he's abandoned you, but he's getting your attention. Not that he's going to forsake you, but that he won't ever forsake you, so he'll never leave you alone. You've got to rail against your reactivity about trouble and realize that God is up to something always in it. That's what trusting in the Lord is. That's what acknowledging him is. So Solomon says the end of the matter is trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not in your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Now I realize... In all of these things, you're having relational troubles or money troubles or trouble troubles or racial troubles. And someone said to you, hey, it's okay, man. Just trust God. You would want to hit him in the face. Like, I can go to the mall and buy a poster that talks about mounting on eagle's wings and stuff. How is that going to help me? That means we hadn't gotten it, though, see? 
It does feel empty. Don't tell people that because you empathize with them and all that. But, but when the Bible says trust God, it never thinks of it as a flimsy thing to tell someone. It thinks of it as the most sturdy thing it can tell someone. I've been astounded listening to Jesus. So I've been praying through the Gospel of Mark and thinking, wow. Like, in some places, he couldn't do miracles because people didn't have any trust. He couldn't do miracles because there was no faith there. In other places, he says, have faith in God. You say to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and believe it will be done. It will be done. When? I don't know. Eventually. But he, may, he acts like it's a real thing. Like believing God, expecting God to do things, asking God to do things will happen. How many times has he said, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. He was astonished at their faith, we're told. He loves trust. It's a way to have a sturdy life. Chapman and Emily Brown. Chapman told me this story. They were up in Wisconsin for some reason. Sorry. They were visiting Clara's family. And there was a lake there that had frozen in the winter. And they had heard about these things. You know, you can walk on these things. So they got on because, you know, southern people don't trust this. We don't ever come up against ice unless we buy it at one of those stands and then you eat it. You don't see lakes and rivers frozen over. And so they got on the lake and, they, and you can hear it shifting. And they, they're like, hmm. And Chapman and Emily together weigh like 122 pounds, I think. And so they're like walking like this. Right? And as they're doing that, I guess some guy from the mountain in a huge truck comes up there. I don't know. It's a huge truck. And he, he said he didn't realize there were rednecks in Wisconsin, but apparently there are he said somebody in a huge truck came up on the ice and was doing donuts. While they're, while they're like walking, afraid the ice is going to break, somebody in a 4x4 four four is doing donuts on the ice. The trust is just getting on the ice and, to start with. And for some of us, it's a timid little walking. We're having to see if it's going to hold. There's some risk of faith you're going to have to take. You're going to have to see, is it going to hold? Is God going to hold me? Is it going to be there? And some of you are learning more and more to get in your four-wheel drive. You let out a bow and Luke do, and spin around on the ice because you know that trust in the Lord and lean not on your own understanding is a way of liberation. It's a way to sail. It's a way to fly. It's a real, real thing. And when you lean on your own understanding, it's an easy-to-topple thing. The final illustration. You see these white chairs? God bless you for sitting in them. You see these chairs? Yeah. These are wood-slatted chairs. They can hold an 800-pound man. These chairs cannot. I knew this. I knew this. I knew this. Yet one day during a time of training small group leaders in this very spot. We had a circle, as you do in small groups, and I think uh, Meredith Richmond and one of their babies was standing next to me, and there was a whole group of people, and I was teaching them how to lead a small group, or we were doing some training-type stuff, and I was leaning forward in one of these seats, and I knew when I sat in the seat, I shouldn't be sitting in the seat. You know, but I leaned on it anyway. It was there. I trusted it, and as I was talking, something happened. It went kind of like this. So you see, uh, that was my bohonkus hitting the concrete floor with 
heat underneath it, apparently. And then not only was my bohonkus bruised, but also my pride. And then I looked backwards, 15 feet from where I was seated, seated, and there was the chair that looked like a man in a drunken rage had had a fight with it. He had gotten mad. He started punching it. He was rolling it around, and he was taking a sledgehammer to it. And then all the people here were laughing at their beloved pastor, esteemed as he is. And the people upstairs were laughing. How did they even know? Because the chair could not hold my weight. How, I have no idea how it shot out that far. That didn't even do anything to it, and it was totally mangled. Beyond redemption. In the resurrection of the dead, God will be like, nope, sorry. Not that chair. But when you lean on your own understanding, you're leaning on something that can't hold your weight. That's what trust is all about. What can hold you up? What can hold your weight? What can hold the weight of your sin? What can hold the weight of your partiality? What can hold the weight of your finitude? What can hold the weight of life and death? Except the one who's gone through it. Except the one who's conquered it. Except the one who says, if you have faith in me, you'll never see death. Except the one who says, believe in me and you will produce much fruit. You see... Trust the Lord with all your heart isn't just something that Thomas Kincaid can paint about and brighten lively colors. It's something that you're meant to lean your whole life on because it matters and nothing else will be able to sustain your weight. Oh Lord, give us an undivided heart and let us trust you.